Often we let our emotional fear make the decisions for us. And I think it's really important that we recognize that we acknowledge the fear, embrace the fear, but also make the harder choice that will make us a better human being. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a phenomenal guest today. Dr. James Kelly is the author of The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. The book is based on his interviews from 140 plus executives, ranging from Fortune 100 companies to entrepreneurs to everything in between. The Crucible's Gift unpacks the journey a leader takes to become a more authentic leader, starting with their crucible moments. Besides writing, James speaks and conducts seminars on authentic leadership, as well as teaches at the United Arab Emirates University. He completed his PhD in international marketing at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia, and ascended to higher education to work in Philadelphia. We're going to talk a little bit more about James' story as we get in, but James, it is fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, Richard, it is super rad to be here, and uh, I'm just excited to contribute to whatever I can contribute to, so let's, let's do this. Super rad is not a term that any of the guests have ever used on my show, so I'm loving that right away. So we're definitely going to spend some time talking about your book, and I'm excited to share that. But you have a very international flavor to your story. You trained in Perth. You've been all over the place. Talk to us about that journey and what was kind of the seminal moment for you that put you on the path you're on today? Wow. So big question, uh, difficult to answer. First of all, I don't believe there's any one seminal moment in someone's life. We are a 50, 70 year histogram of our life, right? And every experience is an additive experience. And every experience influences and impacts you in a different way, whether you're open to it or not. As a psychologist and as, an, as a practicing psychologist on TV myself, I, uh, I tend to believe that we are a sum of our parts. And so, you know, how I started being international or going international. The short is that I took a water polo team in 2003 to Australia. And that was my first time abroad. And since 2003, I've spent more time living abroad than I have in the US at that point. I grew up in a house that was 900 square feet with six people, one bathroom, all men except my mom, my poor mom. We didn't do anything. We were poor. I took three vacations my whole life and they were to see family in Toronto. I grew up in Portland. And so we didn't go to the beach. We didn't go to the mountains. We didn't go hiking. Uh, our vacations were staycations because we didn't have money. And so those staycations meant workcations for me, which means cleaning something, mowing something, trimming something, pulling something. Uh, and so when I had that opportunity in 2003 to, to go abroad, I felt like my soul was being filled with an opportunity 
to experience something other than myself, other than the surrounding that I was in. And it just um, it inspired me to see more of the world. And see more of the world you did. You're now in Dubai, which is unusual. We, ha- we haven't had any representation of the Middle East on this show. So congrats <laughs> on, on being the first. And, and you are a professor over there. So talk to us a little bit about you know, what you're teaching. And then I definitely want to spend some time and dig into why you wrote The Crucible's Gift and go from there. Yeah, so I teach, um, ironically, uh, my life is full of irony uh, and juxtapositions, but ironically, I teach marketing. So when I was getting my PhD in Australia, my advisor at the time decided to uh, take off and move to Dubai, ironically, and open, I don't know if you've ever seen the story about the indoor ski slope, but they hired him to consult on opening that ski slope here in Dubai. So anyhow, he left and did not want to have any advisees. And so I was kind of left literally on the other side of the planet. Um, and a friend of mine said to me that, you know, I have these two advisors. They're really good, but they're in marketing, the world renowned. And I thought, well, I got to be in marketing in uh, undergrad, so can't be that bad. And so that's kind of <laughs> my decision making wasn't particularly sound, but that's where I got to. And so I ended up doing marketing. But, but the irony is that when I started my PhD, it was in leadership. And so, you know, as life is and the nudges that it gives you, 10 years later, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, I write a book on leadership. So that's clearly my path I started on was the right path. Just I took a little bit of a detour in the 10 years in between. And I like that you, you know, you alluded to in the beginning that, you know, the journey is the summative collection of these different experiences. The term you used was histogram, which I loved. So what was the impetus, though, for actually wanting to sit down and write this book on leadership? And your book on leadership is different than a lot of books because you went right to the source with some phenomenal leaders and, and took their expertise. So what, what was it that made you want to write this particular book? So I know I love this question, Richard, to me is fascinating only because it is a question you would expect to get. But the fascinating part to me is how my answers changed since I've written the book. And I think that as I reflect on the reasons of writing the book, the initial answer I, get, I gave was, well, I, I you know, had this podcast, Executive After Hours, and after hearing these interviews again and again, I started to see a theme. But, but the reality of the situation is, and I think most authors maybe would say this, is that they had it inside them. And they had it based, you know, I talked about life as a histogram. This was my history of moments of adversity and what I did with that adversity. And so that wasn't my intent when I started the book, when I started the process of collecting data for the book, if you will, or interviews. It was to write a book on corporate health and wellness, interviewing CEOs around that. But as I interviewed these executives and they started hearing their adversity moments and how they transformed, it really was inside me. And that became... The interviews became the evidence that I needed to know my thought process, my philosophy, my methodology, my framework was probably spot on. And so, you know, did, did the interviews lead me to the book or did I lead myself to the book and the interviews provided support? I don't know. But what I do know is that they both coincided. And through the collaboration of being open to the possibilities, I, I figured out that the interviews gave me confidence that my story inside was the right story to give to the world. I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, it made sense and it gave me another question I want to ask you. So you interviewed all of these leaders, these top CEOs, and we definitely are going to dive deeper into this. But this crucible moment, this moment of adversity, I want to see how that, because I've had other people talk about the work of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. So talk to us about how your work parallels that and what are some of the key differences? To be fair, I've never read Joseph's book. I know about the hero's journey. People talk about it all the time. For me, the idea of the crucible, you know, I was on a, I was on a podcast, I don't know, six, seven months ago, but, but the, the gentleman used the phrase, embrace the suck, right? And, and I love it, even though it's crass, I love it because that is what it takes for individuals to transform their identity to become something better than what they were before the adversity. Because the adversity forces you to create awareness. And there are people who avoid that awareness and they just become the victim of the situation. You know, there's a phrase that I use that people who are victims will use the phrase, it happened to me. People who are uh, open to the possibilities of the positive of the crucible will say it happened for me. And so I say it's the to me or for me phrase. And which one do you use will tell you kind of where you're at in the ledger, so to speak. And so, you know, the idea of the crucible to me becomes central to my life, but it became central to the, the executives that I interviewed's life as well, because it was, it was in their adversity moments that they learned the most about themselves, how they dealt with other people, what they needed, and what they could give to other people. But without that adversity, they weren't able to actually see the light of those possibilities. And having interviewed so many people, and I know you're a guy who likes data. So what did the data show? So for the top CEOs, how Mm. did they approach adversity in a manner that was different? I know you Mm. said happening to me, happening for me, but in terms of their response to adversity, what what do top leaders do that's markedly different than everybody else? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that, not avoiding your question, but hopefully explaining it in a different way. Top leaders, in, no one has a patent on the process of dealing with adversity. And, and Richard, if you have one, please share it. I'll take the royalties in the back We're end. working on trademarking it. We'll, we'll... <laughs> but but what, they, what they had that was consistent was a growth mindset. And so within that growth mindset, and it didn't have to be a CEO, it could have been anyone who had adversity, but within that growth mindset, they allowed to, they allowed themselves, and I keep using this phrase, I think it's such an important phrase, they allowed themselves to be, oppor- be open to the opportunity of what if. And that doesn't mean they ignored the adversity. It didn't mean, doesn't mean that they weren't depressed and sad for a time period. In fact, I think that's quite healthy to go through that process. What they did different than many others is that they, at some point they put that self-pity and sadness on the shelf and said, okay, what does this really mean? And how can I use it to become a better human being, a better husband and wife, a better, better father or mother, and a better, a better supervisor, a better leader, a better CEO? And that, that to me was the difference. Some, I've interviewed people who either never had adversity or significant adversity or never really embraced the adversity moment. And because of that, they were stagnant. And the, you know, they were the protagonists in their own world. 
And and I think sometimes uh, protagonists don't always kind of uh, aren't perceived well. Does that make sense? It does. And it actually has given me another difficult question to ask you, unre- unrelated to the corporate world in particular. But bring it, bring it. One of the things that, as you're talking, it made me think about, particularly you're saying these people who have never been through adversity. So as we're now starting to do research and there's, there's decent literature coming out on millennials and, you know, a lot of people refer to millennials, uh, you know, as this, the trophy for generation, right? Like, and, and I'm not, obviously you and I know many wonderful millennials who are, the question that I'm asking is what are your thoughts based on the work you did with the crucible on you know, how generations handle adversity different because there are people in this country who are younger and really the culture around them has promoted the avoidance of adversity. Like they, they, haven't, they haven't had some of the challenges that, that other generations before them had faced. So how would you respond to that? Uh, well, I think that's quite, I mean, uh, yes. You know, um, I'm probably not the trophy father because, for example, when we moved, uh, I wouldn't let my kids keep their participation medals and stuff. So I was like, listen, you showed up. That's your job. I'm not going to let you keep the reward for that. So I said it much nicer than that. But I do think that you can't underestimate, maybe millennials come their 20s without the adversity that perhaps you and I had, might have been more coddled. I think parents try to do the best they can with what they know. What I will say is that life will eventually give them the experience they need. They will have adversity moments. And that will strengthen their resolve and their resilience over time. You know, I mean, let's be clear. Like when you and I went to university, that's an adversity moment. When you and I got married, not together clearly, but to our (laughs) that's a positive adversity moment. When we had our first child, that's a positive adversity moment. I mean, they're going to have adversity moments. The bigger question is, is not if they're going to have them and are they going to deal with them but are are they going to have are they going to have the strength to be honest with themselves when it's a, after the occurrence of them you know if you're if you're told your whole life you're great can you accept the fact that sometimes you suck and is that okay and you know i say yes cuz man i'm i suck all the time and i'm okay with that because like at the end of the day i'm a better dad than i was 10 years ago I'm a better husband than I was 10 years ago only because, and I go back to this, because I have a growth mindset uh, and I'm willing to explore my failures. And so I think that's the point I'm making is that millennials, they're going to fail. They're going to have adversity moments. And, you know, through the work of appreciative inquiry, can we, can we educate a group of, of, of executives and people to ask the right questions, the appreciative questions? to explore the possibilities that the failure actually is a positive for them. It might have taught them more patience, may have taught them the ability to communicate more clearly, to give better directions, to explore their opportunities. You know, um, I've been fired from two jobs. I'm 44 years old. And these are both as adults, by the way. (laughs) So not as like a teenager. 
I have, uh, before my wife, I was a really bad boyfriend, you know? So like I have a truckload, like a semi, like the three truck semi load of trash that I've done in my life. But if I wasn't willing to take those experiences and look at them and pull them apart and explore them, I wouldn't have been able to deal with my adversity. And that's what leaders do. And that's what millennials will have to do. They can't not. Now, some will be able to deal with it and some won't. And you know that, Richard. Like Some don't have the resilience. They've never built it. Some have a DNA of it and they can deal with it straight away. But there are people like you and I at our age who still have no resilience, who can't deal with their shoelace coming untied without a freak out. So like, I just think often we say millennials can't do X, but millennials haven't been taught to do X. And so once they get into that social framework, the framework will push them and, and, and challenge them to where the X of resilience becomes the norm or they can deal with it. I don't know, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm a bit on a soapbox right now. No, I, I think it's good. I, 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 I didn't expect to talk to you about millennials at all today, but it just <laughs> seemed like, huh, I like guess you're talking about it. Um, yeah. it, it seemed like the right way to go. No, and, that's a great question. Yeah, uh, and a great answer. So no, your, your soapbox was was well timed. <laughs> so, now knock me off it. Knock me off. No, it. I'm gonna I'm gonna kick you right <laughs> off of it. Now no, the, um, I'm also kind of curious about why you got fired. But no, we, we won't <laughs> we won't go there. No, I'll uh, tell you. I don't. I mean, I don't care. I'll tell you. Yeah, roll so, with. So uh, the first the, so the first job, um, I was managing an advertising office down in San Jose, and I was promised a set of tools to facilitate the job better. That didn't happen. And so one of those tools was not to do sales calls. And so I was a bit bitter when they started telling me to do sales calls. And this was back in 2000 when we weren't quite as savvy with uh, spam. And so I don't know if you remember in 2000 when a link would say, you know, click on this link and you know you shouldn't click on this link. <laughs> but you, you were anyway? curious. Yeah. yeah. And so I did and I knocked out the internet for 20 two of the 24 offices when I did it. That's phenomenal. Uh, and so two weeks later, I was fired. They said <laughs> laid off, but totally fired. And then the second one was when I got essentially fired from getting tenure. So I didn't get tenure at my last job. I didn't qualify. I didn't get over the hump. Um, I got fired for that. Um, I got fired from a country club when I was in college because I called the guest the B word because she was acting like a complete jerk. Um, and I was trying to defend one of my colleagues. And I said, you know, you don't have to be a beep. And uh, I got fired straight away. And I told my boss, you have to do what you have to do. I broke the rules. I'm cool with that. So yeah, like, listen, I've been fired. I sound like I'm a bit of a wild card, but I'm actually a really good person. I just, uh, yeah. I, 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 know, I know at least three people who will vouch for you. So yeah. <laughs> but don't ask for a fourth. <laughs> no, no, but I can, I can pull three. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. 
you'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. I want to kind of circle back to something we talked about before. So we we have established the seminal moment, not, not the seminal moment, excuse me, the crucible moment. Let's use the right word here. The crucible moment where this adversity hits leaders. And then we also talked about how, depending on one's you know background and their DNA, and there's all these different variables which determine how somebody might react to the adversity. But I also suspect that as you did your research, you found some commonality in skills and techniques that people could utilize to start shifting through adversity, not just in a corporate sector, but in their lives as well. I'm sure this is very applicable to those spaces. So uh, share some of those with us. Yeah. So let me, um, if you don't mind me back up a little bit, because it might make a bit more sense from a context perspective. You know, in the book, I, I propose a framework called the authentic leadership model. And basically what I propose is that individuals who have had adversity, who've embraced their adversity, they have the greater propensity, the greater ability to start living with more compassion because they've been through something. They can relate to people who've been through the same thing. And I distinguish between compassion and empathy on purpose. People mix them up often. Um, I went straight for compassion. And so I think compassion is really important in the workplace. There's literature about why it's important. But I said, you know, Adversity equals having more compassion. Adversity equals having more integrity, behavioral integrity, showing up, being respectful. Uh, Adversity equals uh, valuing relationships to a deeper level. But all of that only occurs through increased self-awareness and a growth mindset. So there are people who've had adversity who aren't compassionate, don't really care about valuing relationships, are self-destructive, but that's because they they lack self-awareness or a growth mindset. So the caveat that I mean, there's this framework. And so the outcome of these, these leaders, and I also preface this by saying, nobody is 100% in anything. Nobody owns the real estate in perfection. Uh, and if you know someone, Richard, please let me know. I'd like to interview them. But, but nobody is perfect. And so some of the leaders I interviewed were really good in compassion. Some I interviewed were excellent in integrity, showing up. Some were awesome at valuing relationships, creating micro moments of meaning. And so the outbirth of the adversity was, was, was what was most important to me. The tactics to be more authentic there. You know, I go through the book in each chapter and I have a workbook coming out uh, that, that is a companion piece for the book about becoming more authentic in five weeks, using appreciative inquiry as a framework. And um, the short is that there are tactics to become more self-aware, have more compassion, live with more integrity. And I try to run you through that. So each chapter has set of to-dos, if you will, that came from a, from a clinical psychologist from Philadelphia that I worked with named Dr. Seth Gillahan. And so if you want to know specific is what I'm getting to, do you want to know something specific about self-awareness or compassion or integrity? Like, so that's why I don't want to just give you a blanket statement of 100 of them. So if there's one that speaks to you, let's tackle that. Let's, I think self-awareness, because integrity is pretty straightforward, right? People understand that, but self-awareness may may seem nebulous to some people. So let's let's take a deeper dive into that one. Yeah, okay. So self-awareness is 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 you ask any coach, any psychologist, anyone, that's the hardest thing, right? Like that's the hardest thing to get people to realize their patterns, realize 
some of their characteristics that might impede or enhance their well-being. Uh, some of us just aren't gifted in that space. So I, I recommend a couple of different things. You know, one is always the go-to, start working on a mindfulness practice. And so, you know, in my workbook, I actually make it very simple. And I say, listen, just do it one minute a day. That's it. One minute, quiet breathing, close your eyes. I'll give some links. Here's where you go find best practices. But I think mindfulness is a great trigger. I also like to do body scan in the morning. So I lay in bed and I start with my toes and I kind of do a mindfulness meditation about my body. How does it feel? What's aching? What feels you know good? So forth and so on. Um, other things I like to do or ask for feedback. You know, one of the things that you and I probably both learned, maybe you did knew this before, is that Flourishing Leadership Institute, John Berghoff, really talks about a great way to give feedback. What do you love and what would you love to see? And so I really try to get people to, to use that framework to get feedback from those around them. Now, feedback's kind of this caveat because if you're an executive, people tend to want to kiss your butt and tell you what you want to hear. And so You've got to surround yourself with people that you trust are going to give you honest feedback. That also then dovetails on the, intent, on the idea that you need to have the intention to want to get that feedback. So if you want affirmation, then you're not really caring about self-awareness. But if you want, if you want clarity, consistency, um, and you want, you want someone to be honest with you, you, you got to ask for it from the people who you know are going to give it to you regardless. Because they have your best interest in mind to make you a better person, not their own best interest in mind. Um, what else do I put for self-awareness? Um, I know I have other things and I can't remember off the top of my head what they are. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sorry. So I can remember off the top of my head. <laughs> well, yeah. I know it's been a long day for you. We'll, we will yeah. just, uh, just have to read the book, everybody, and, and find <laughs> the other secrets to, to self-awareness. But, yeah. but um, so, I, I mean, I know that that's one of the components. So yeah. obviously... Well, what do you think about that? I'm just curious. Like, you know, as a psychologist, what would you say to someone like, how would you develop your self-awareness from your perspective? Well, obviously introspection, you know, happens when the little light bulb goes off that you recognize that something needs to be changed, right? Yeah. Like that you've got a problem. And so the what you said was was very interesting is that, you know, there are people who are going to give you the cold hard feedback. And there are people that won't. What I what I talk about often, and, and I, I don't want to derail the show to talk about social media, but there is a shift in society because of what's happening with social media. Whereas, oh, in fact, my my I think you and I talked about this uh, when we met in person. My doctoral dissertation was on the impact of social media from technology, and mm-hmm. as it relates to maladaptive personality functioning. So, what's starting to happen is that. We used to get this corrective feedback from our environment socially. That is, somebody who has a really poor way with people is going to have this, get this note when they come home and their spouse has left them because they're such a jerk or they get fired, you know, because they're such a (laughs) jerk. And so what's happened now is we are surrounding ourselves with a 24 hour information cycle in which simply we like and subscribe to and follow that which is you know supportive of the belief system that we want to have and we get rid of all evidence of things to the contrary so 
it's be, I think self-awareness for those that are really having some life pro- challenges, it's become more difficult because essentially all that happens is if I don't like the way you feel about me, I unfriend you with a click. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. and then I can, through self-promotion, find 20 other people who will share my ideology or my point of view, even if it's misguided, if not foolish. And mm-hmm. so it creates this you know, it's confirmation bias on steroids, right? The, the concept yeah. that it promotes this cycle where we just basically think we're great and then we have everybody telling us that we're great. But like you mm. said, that's not self-awareness. Mm. That's, but, that's self-confirmation. Really. That's, <laughs> like, right. Like, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, we're in an era where it may be even more difficult than it has been in years past for people short of having to use your framework, that crucible moment, you know, something really significantly life-changing happening to them. Um, and I, can, I, can I add to that, Joe? Because I think this is this I was thinking about when you were talking, as listening to you, is that that to me ends up being the root of self-awareness, right? Like I kind of lost the plot what my book's about, but like at the end of the day, that, that crucible is what drives your self-awareness. You don't know that you suck at your job until you get fired, right? You don't know that you're a bad husband until your wife divorces you. You don't know you're a bad dad until you're not around your kids anymore, they, or they tell your wife that they won't, don't like seeing you. Like, like you don't know a lot of your own blind spots until either you ask for them or something negative occurs or positive occurs. Right? I don't want to put it in on one side. So I, I just wanted to say, like, self awareness. You know, uh, when people ask for a prescription on how to be. One of the things that I do in the book and I do in my workbook is I actually have you investigate your, your adversity moments because within those adversity moments, that's where the, the self-awareness kind of is gained. The, as you said, the light bulb moment. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to make sure I, I got that in there because that's a really important part of self-awareness is investigating your moments, investigating those times and those trials and those successes and what was it about those that, that you can bring forward. No, that, that, that's that's awesome. And you've brought up the workbook a couple of times. The the book's out there and mm-hmm. available on Amazon, and we'll have links to it in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com as well as in the Daily Helping app. Talk to us. When, when is that workbook going to be available? So uh, chapter one is virtually done. You know, workbooks aren't uh, a huge lift compared to an actual book. So uh, the aim is to have it out by the First of the year, probably January, February, okay. give or take, depending. So I'm trying to find some additional funding for the book to do it a different way than I want to do it. The audio book comes out, I think, in December before Christmas. Um, that's my next big task as well. So that's that's on the docket. But the workbook I'm pretty excited about. You know, there are a lot of really good workbooks here. One of our colleagues at the conference, uh, Julie Riesler. Thank you, Riesler, yep. who, who is awesome. Hers is, a, is an amazing book, but it's pretty thick. So it, you've got to be fully vested in it. I don't mean that in a negative connotation whatsoever. Like people who buy her book are fully vested in it. Uh, my book is for the people who realize that they can only tackle one, t- one thing a day. Uh, Julie Reesler is actually a friend of the show. She's been on episode 21. So I suggest if you haven't checked out her episode to do so uh, on emotional eating, it's, it's phenomenal and, and very powerful. But um, so it sounds like, James, that the workbook isn't quite ready for public consumption. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll make sure that we have that posted up when, when that launches for you so our audience can dive into that. James, we're at time. I, I have loved this interview. 
This has been a ton of fun. And as you know, I, I wrap up every episode I do by asking my guest a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our discussion today? So I love this question. I think the, the biggest bit of advice I like to give people is don't let fear conquer you, conquer fear. The reason why I say that is often we let our emotional fear make the decisions for us. And I think it's really important that we recognize that we acknowledge the fear, embrace the fear, but also make the harder choice that will make us a better human being. I love it. James, where can people find you? Uh, you can check me out on my website at www.drjameskelly.com. That is drjameskelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y.com. You can also get the book on Amazon. If you are for the independent bookstore, uh, there's the independent book website, <laughs> Indie book.org, I think. I think I just totally butchered that as well. Um, you can also get me on online. Just go to my website. You can find me all there. I'm a babbling mess at this point. <laughs> well, we will we will have everything Dr. James Kelly, and that's Kelly with an E, uh, linked to you guys in the dailyhelping.com show notes for his episode, as well as in the app, as I mentioned. Uh, James, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Richard, thank you for your time, energy, and willingness to indulge me in this babbling session that I just took you through. <laughs> babbling session. That was a lot of fun. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who checked out this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because that's what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs> <laughs>